welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. Um, another new one this week, same crew of characters, Steve, John, and Matt. Yep. Um, today we have big news to start off. Before we get into the mainstream rock news, we've got an exciting announcement. As of last Tuesday, we were approved for iTunes. Our uh, catalog of the last five episodes are up there. I am now dating this by saying that this is obviously the sixth one, which you try not to do, but I'm pretty confident this will be up tonight, and tonight is obtruse anyway, because I'm not giving a date. So we're on iTunes now. Um, If you guys have been listening through the website, first of all, thank you. We appreciate all the listenership and um, your constant support. Um, I ask that if you can, subscribe on iTunes. Go ahead and give us a good review. Um, If you don't like the podcast, then uh, it's probably better if you keep it to yourself for everybody. Yeah, don't give a review if you don't like us. But um, the more positive reviews we get, the closer we can be to the top ten on iTunes. The the more likely, the more popular we'll get, the more attention we'll get. So, not that not that we think we're gonna get top ten iTunes. If that happens, oh come on, guys, you gotta believe. <laughs> it's all about confidence. Yes, but but Fine. again, we're, we're gonna be number two. But I do want to go on record and thank James from the Wall Street Players, James Sorrenti, for all of his help. Um, getting the dot com up and getting us on iTunes and setting up the RSS feed, that was all him. He's been great, and uh, I just want to personally thank him for that. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Yeah, no, he, he's, he's been our webmaster. He's done all the computer stuff. He, he's awesome. And as always, of course, if you guys prefer to listen to the website, we'll still be up there as well. But, um, but definitely subscribe to iTunes. There are other great podcasts there, too, so you can find lots of great stuff there. So definitely do that. Um, on to the more, I guess you could say, mainstream, I made finger quotes, rock news. Um, Bob Dylan has a new album coming out on September 11th. Um, his 35th, called The Tempest. 35 albums. Okay. Not all of his albums were actual albums. Some of them were greatest hits. Some of them were compilations. Bob Dylan has made a ginormous amount of music. This I'm pretty is, sure those were words. This is true. They were... Right. I, I had to uh, extrapolate the sounds. They had to embellish. There you go. Yes. That is the word. I um, Steve, would you like to read your favorite quote from the article that we have in front of us? Oh, what? Oh, yes, that quote. Okay. Now, granted, I haven't heard this album, but straight from the horse's mouth, he terms it a record where, quote, anything goes and you just got to believe it will make sense. Now, I, I'm all for, you know, experimentation and all that, but... That basically just told me that it doesn't make sense. I mean, I don't know. Do you have any opinions on that? Does anybody else, like, does that strike you as sort of jarring? It's just a very weird way of phrasing it. And even funnier later, as he says, I wanted to make something more religious. And then later on the article goes into how he made a 14-minute track based on the Titanic disaster. But the movie version, not the... Factual. So basically, to recap, we have a religious 14-minute depiction of the Titanic disaster, which doesn't make sense. No, no, or no. Even, that we have to believe will even make better, sense. He I calls, should hope. He says the, the song would not have been the same without Leo, which is the oddest thing you can say making a song about the Titanic. Titanic. It's about the Titanic disaster, that. and the Titanic disaster did not have Leo Nardo. I think it's more about the Titanic disaster in the box office. The way they interpret, the way James, James Cameron interpreted, and the, the way it future shaped the way women wanted movies made. I think, I yeah. think that's the disaster. Well, I, I didn't, for. I didn't even particularly hate the <laughs> Titanic movie, but the, the point is, this is all not the point. <laughs> it's, it's about the Titanic, and that is not the Titanic, so I don't know exactly what he's going for at all. But it'll make sense. We have to believe, right? right, We have to believe. I think also that, like, based on what we read, like, it sounds like this album is going to be all over the place. Like, there's a part where he talks about he has a song called Roll On, John, which is a heartfelt tribute to his friend John Lennon. What does that have to do with the Titanic? What does it have to do with religion? Now, and he's got a song, (laughs) Pay in Blood, which is has the lines I pay in blood but not my own if there's Tin Angel is a tale of a man in search of his lost love there's Soon After Midnight which seems to be about love or revenge nobody's really too sure yet I mean it's it seems like he's going a little schizophrenic here and Dylan himself is a little schizophrenic and I do like Bob Dylan I'm I, I probably going to have to make a lot of fun of this album um, but you know, he, it's, he, it should he's be. Like, he's like a Rolling Stone. I mean, he just keeps going. You know, 
And then you... Yeah. Um, but it's... I don't know if he's just running out of ideas. I don't know if he I mean, knows where he is anymore. It does. It seems like the drugs are really catching up now. It's still really early to tell. We don't have a single yet, which I'm sure we'll talk about when when it's released. As far as I'm aware, anyway, we don't. There's no single out yet for this album, but um, we'll definitely look into that more. It's just so arbitrary. I it, mean, it gra- does... granted, we are kind of in the wake here of the hundredth anniversary of the Titanic, but it just strikes me as that kind of thing. Like, I really felt we we needed to do something about the Titanic. Well, I, just, no. I don't think it's really been been focused on, even though it really has. Yeah, of course o- almost it has. too much. This is, this is the quote that I think best sums up him and his way of thinking. But a songwriter doesn't care what's truthful. What he cares about is what should have happened, what could have happened. That's its own kind of truth. And I'm really not sure what he's I saying take there. I such offense to that. Now, now what he continues, uh, he continues and, and he says something else that truly confuses me. He says, it's like people who read Shakespeare plays but never see a Shakespeare play. I think they just use his name. I'm not sure what he's trying to say, but it sounds interesting, like most of his music. Hey, John, (laughs) was that English? Because I didn't understand it. It was English, but it wasn't grammar. He pretty much said that the definition of truth isn't the definition of truth, essentially. (sighs) Which yeah. is why, which is why I think fourteen minutes of Titanic can be awesome or terrible. We'll have to Let's see. see. Yeah. The only song I like that's over seven minutes long has so far been Arlo Guthrie's "Alice's Restaurant," and that is just a folk song of of an awesome story. I love song, love it. Uh, but a disaster fourteen minute song, and that's supposed to be the headlining title track. How are you going to get that on the radio? How How are you going to get that as a single? I, I guess you won't, or there'll be a radio edit. Uh, what, what is Bob doing? I don't know. Well, let me just I, say this. I, I think that I, I could almost get on board with what he was trying to say, even though he used the worst analogy possible, because I think that Shakespeare thing just went off on a limb. But he says, what the songwriter cares about is, is what should have happened and what could have happened. I can kind of understand that a little bit, because songwriters, you know, by definition, are very fantastical. They do focus on... A, you know, what is uh, sort of abstract and, you know, the ethereal desires of the plight of man or whatever, however you want to put it. But I don't know. I think that's just a horrible analogy because to say that people who never saw a Shakespeare play, that they just use his name, I mean, that's kind of borrowing from... Are you following this at all? Yeah, I, I, I definitely follow you. I think that we're pretty much at a point with this new story that we can just put it to rest that we think Bob Dylan's old and crazy. And when we hear the album, we can make better assessments, I think, going forward. I mean... Or better jokes. Or better jokes. Either or. I think that at this point, we should move forward, because I, I, I think it's clear that none of us are too impressed with, the, with what he has to say at this moment, and we'll just have to see going forward. Our second story of the day... Um, I love this one. <laughs> entitled Science Hates Pop. Ugh. It has been scientifically proven that modern pop music really is louder and does all sound the same. <laughs> Which I find hysterical and truthful and vindicating. This day has been in the making for years. No, no. Years. Here's in Spain at the um, Milan Song Dataset. Million Song Dataset. Oh, million. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the Million Song. Milan is also not in Spain. <laughs> the million Song Dataset. Is a uh, a huge arch- archive which breaks down audio and lyrical content into data that is crunched that you can actually measure. It was used to study bo- pop songs spanning from 1955 to 2010. The uh, uh, specialist Joan Serra at the Spanish National Research Council ran through all this music in their algorithms and all that sort of stuff, and they found quote. Evidence of a progressive homogenization of musical discourse. In English, that means that the chords, the melodies, the actual sound of pop... It's all running together. It's becoming diluted. It's becoming same. This makes me so happy because it vindicates everything I've been saying about pop for the past my life. Same here. Same here. It's so now, me. now, whenever you come across, you know, somebody who who makes a vehement argument toward 
Well, you know, Pop, it's just another type of music. You, you, you just don't understand it. You just can't get into what it's trying to say to you. And it, there's a complexity in there. There's a complexity within the man, which you're just not seeing. Now I can whip this article in their faces and say, no, no, homogenization, it is all the same. And right, because... You have no taste. Because in life, when you have scientific proof, proof, it totally stops fanatical people from believing what they believe. Of course. That works every time. This is true. It won't make a difference. It won't. Not at all. Okay, yeah. But I love having the paper in front of me. Of course. It's not going to change anybody. It's not going to convert anybody. It's more of a uh, vindication for those who realize this. And it doesn't mean that all pop music sucks. It just means that the general trend of pop is... Downward, so we can hold a cigar in our hands and puff the next one. And say, oh, I say, my good chap, that theory you had twenty years ago, you have proven correctly. Science is proven it. Yes, indubitably, indeed, yes, quite. But it's just, I find it really funny uh, that there's all these people out there that truly defend pop as a very in depth, a very ingenious, a very you know powerful type of music. And it's not, it's not even naysayers anymore. The math is saying they're wrong. And I, I've, I've mentioned before, I like math. And right now, I don't think I like math ever, <laughs> any more than I can right yeah. now. Right now, math is my friend. A couple other things that, that they were uh, talking about that they discovered was um, the same notes are being played uh, more often. The timber palette has become poorer. A timbre, just, just timbre, if, in case anyone's unfamiliar with the term, basically means the the palette of types of sounds that you're hearing. You can, for instance, play an E on a guitar. Why should that sound so different from an E played in a violin? They're both stringed instruments, but the thing is the attack of the note is very, very different on each. They they bounce off the airwaves in a different way, and that's how we build our instrumentation, is basically trying to make a mesh of all these different types of timbres, just so we you know, change up our moods and change up our uh, our ideas of what the music is trying to get at. And uh, that's that's something to be said for that. When you get variety, you can get a variety of moods. But when you don't have a variety of tampers, tampers you do not have a variety of moods. You have the same. And <laughs> that's that word, homogenization. And we're getting more of that as time goes on. Math is proven it. And my, fav- my favorite part, it's getting louder. Louder. Everything yes. is getting intrinsically louder. They're covering up... The, the the sameness with you can't hear it anymore because your ears are starting to bleed. Exactly, because most of these most of these songs are meant to be heard in a dance hall setting. And when you hear it in a dance hall setting, you want it as loud as possible. You want to you want it to sort of vibrate through your through your bloodstream and just get you going. But that doesn't necessarily speak to how good the music is, because after all you can do that with anything. And what they're saying here is that it says that music from, let's say, the 50s or 60s, which had a broader, um, a, a broader timbre palette, a broader palette in terms of chordal structure and everything else, theoretically, you could play that at the same volume, which it never was. It wasn't used, it wasn't accustomed to playing at such a volume. And now you can play it at that volume, and you might actually get a different impression of it than people at the time, through their, you know, very lo-fi speakers who were actually able to get out of this music. Today, it could be revived. <laughs> well, what... Uh, I- at the end of this article was one of my favorite little bits. They kind of threw it in there. And it says, Old tunes re-recorded with increased loudness, simpler chord progressions, and different instruments could sound new and fashionable. Yeah, you got it, right. The Rolling Stones in their 50th anniversary year should take note. <laughs> and it's, it's almost hysterical because Rolling Stones really did kind of, uh, along with the Beatles, uh, to a lesser set, uh, extent, along with... Uh, the Who and the Monkeys and the Doors and Queen and Queen, but the Rolling Stones were almost opposite the Beatles in creating the 1960s, early 70s pop noise, right? The pop music, and it's kind of weird because it's almost like the Stones didn't really follow the formula of the rest is pop gone. Because if you listen to some of their stuff, it sounds like them as opposed to sounding like pop. It's almost like they bred this type of music and then decided uh, let's have nothing to do with it. Right. Mm. But they've also lost their favorability that they used to have back in the day. Their new stuff is not nearly as popular. Do you think they should go pop? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, 
there are a lot of bands, even now, like when we talked about Maroon 5, how they clearly had an alt-rock kind of vibe, and now they're more pop related to the modern pop version of pop. And, I mean, it really depends on the band, the expectation, you know, or what you want to do in your career. I mean, when it comes down to it, a bands like the Rolling Stones, they're either making music for their fans or themselves or both. You know, they're going to do either what they want to do because they want to make that next step regardless of what the fans think, or they're going to keep producing what the fans want. You know, so it could really, I mean, it really, it, it might not hurt them. They could definitely, it, it, I don't know what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that they could go that route, but I don't know that the fans would accept it as readily as if a band that is more modern would do it. Well, regardless of what the Rolling Stones do, I, th- I think what we're trying to get at here is simply that pop, it, it has been proven, pop is definitely dying. It's withering and, away. And but by, not in popularity. I don't and know. And that's the strange thing. I don't know that it's dying, but it's definitely, in quality, it's on a downward slope. That doesn't mean that it will always be going down. Well, the idea is that as listeners, you're going to have to start using your brain, you know, something yeah. that a lot of listeners don't like doing. And when you, lose your, when you use your brain, you're going to find a broader palette of sounds pleases you. And right. when you don't use your brain, you're going to be just settled with the same thing. Uh, and we're so not... I, when it comes to... I, I don't even... I'm not necessarily criticizing the listeners outright. I think they should just at least admit that it is a guilty pleasure at best. There's nothing wrong with liking pop music as long as you recognize what it is. Exactly. Defending it as a better quality sound than it is. There is nothing groundbreaking going on in pop. Right. I use my favorite example of my greatest guilty pleasure. I love Nickelback. They have not revolutionized anything in rock music at all. But I still enjoy them. And that's, I think, what really matters is if you enjoy it and you recognize what it is, then no one can fault you for listening to it. But it's the people who listen to something and defend it to the teeth saying it's higher or better or, or more well-made than it actually is. Because you know, whether something's good or bad, that's opinion. Whether it's made well or made poorly is fact. Quality mm-hmm. is fact. Quality is not necessarily fact. Quality can also be measured in multiple different ways. You can say it's bad quality this way, it's good quality that way. It depends on the formula you're trying to set up. But it's still basing it on things that exist. Measurement as opposed to taste, but also... A better way to put it is simplicity versus complexity. You can say when something is simple, and you can say when something is complex. True. But each can be good in their own right, and also each can be bad. Actually, there's, there's... there's something that we're going to talk about in a few moments, actually. Yes. So, let's go right into our album of the week, Steve. Interpol. Album? Interpol. Yes. 2010. This is their self-titled and fourth full-length album. And, well, I'd say that Interpol has gone through a lot of changes over the years. And uh, the interesting thing about this particular about this particular podcast, is that I'm the one familiar with their recent work, and Matt and John are not. So on my own behalf, I can say that I didn't know what what to expect from this album. I I thought they could have borrowed from any elements of their past, and they decided to hone in on one particular aspect of it, and that would probably be off their third debut album, when they introduced an element that I would call a slight bit epic. And this album, they tried to bank off of it. Now, as to whether they succeeded or whether they didn't, that's what we're here to determine. Um, as a whole, I mean, to start off, I liked the album. I didn't, I didn't dislike it. But it took a full listen to really grab me because it was definitely very different from a lot of the other stuff we've listened to. Um, it didn't start off very strong. Um, the first couple of tracks we heard audio issues that we at first thought might have been what it was being played through, but then we kind of realized that it was more just how it was produced, how it was mixed. And it was this weird dropping and increasing of the volume as the songs played. And it was kind of off-putting. It, it was less noticeable through a pair of headphones, but when we were listening to it through speakers, it was a lot more obvious. And it, it really was, was it, very jarring. It was it's very difficult to get past. But after listening to the album in its entirety and going back and listening to the first couple of tracks, it was less noticeable, I think, because we had to accustom ourselves to the sound they were trying to produce on the record. It wasn't as noticeable. And we had also uh, changed the um, equalizer on iTunes specifically, which is what we were listening to it through. 
But, you know, I, there were definitely some strong tracks that I really liked. I mean, the first track that really got my attention, although it still had that dropping volume, was Summerwell, which was the third track. That's when I really started to take notice with the album. I didn't so much get it with that track. For me, it took one more track. It took uh, the fourth track, Lights. That was where the album really, really picked up for me. And I, I think from there on, it was pretty solid. You, you, heard, you were starting to sort of get into the, the vibe that the album was trying to create. And it was, um, within its simplicity, I would say there is definitely some complexity. More on the macro than the micro. On the micro, it's, it's very, very simple. Simple chord progressions. But in the macro, they have a greater understanding of what they're doing. They, they were trying to get at something with this album, which is a bit hard to pin down at times. The best you can get at is that it's epic. That's, that's what they're trying to go for. And they, they, they really fuel that with uh, powerful background uh, synth sounds. Uh, at a point there, it seemed like they were trying to throw in strings. Although, there's still some debate about that as to whether that was just a, uh, an effect thrown in a guitar. I gotta agree that Lights was really the turning point. Um, the first three tracks, Success, Memory Serves, Summerwell, uh, they, they, it, someone was playing with the guitar volume. It was coming in, going out, coming in, going out. I really couldn't follow the song well enough to hear the beat versus the guitar versus the bass, which is what they did better later songs. And they, I... they had that layering, that effect, that, that playing off of each other. Because... I think there's a consensus that there's definitely a production issue with Especially those the first three songs. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to mess with your equalizer. I'm going to tell you that straight out. But I found that, especially with um, Lights and Barricade, uh, Lights introduced just guitar and vocals playing off of one another. And it took a while before you really got the extra instruments, the bass coming in, the drums coming in. And it, was, it, was, it started very simple, very nice, very easy to listen to. And then the drums come in, and you got a nice, you got a, you got a solid, almost double beat going between the guitar work and the drums. And this is where I'd say the complexity starts to take hold because it, in that layering, I don't find that prevalent with most other bands. A lot of ban- bands are very, fairly, uh, fairly monotone with their overall sound. This is sort of ironic coming with a band like Interpol, which actually, in their sort of raw garage band style, they can be very monotone, but yet they have a way of of taking out an instrument, then replacing it with another. This sort of checks and balances system of one instrument to the next. Drums is taken out by guitar, replaced by guitar, and it's, it's sort of a prog style. They go through maybe, you know, 16 measures or so of one particular groove with an instrument and then replace it with another. It gives the effect of layering more so than actually layering it. It was very noticeable, and the song that really hooked me, really, like, locked the album in for me, was um, Safe Without, because it had an opening with this steel drum that then got overlaid by standard drums. And you could hear the steel drum kind of echoing in the background, but the, the, the main standard drum set definitely took hold and guided the rest of the song. I liked that track as well, but they kept... It, it, they went back to what was wrong in the first two tracks, first three tracks. The bass kept coming out. I they mean, kept drop. There was bass, 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 and then for like half a measure, it was gone, and... But it, it was... It le- didn't fade out. They just cut it. Right. It wasn't as much in the earlier tracks, though, because that was... The volume was going up and down, but it wasn't fading out completely, whereas in that track, they literally dropped the bass altogether. The guitar work was great in that track. Yes. It was great. Now, I but, think if there was a, uh, a failing in Safe Without, though, I think it would be the fact that it was... A little bit repetitive. Yes. That had more of a monotone sound than the other tracks. Because it, it struck me as a part B to track six, uh, Always Malaise, which I thought was very grand and cinematic, and it had this this dissonant progression that, that had it sort of unravel itself. But then it went into track seven, Safe Without, where it seemed like it was trying to keep that same idea, but it didn't quite make it because it was too static. Always Malaise was my favorite track. Easily. I love that. And to translate what Steve said, <laughs> the violin sounds, the piano sound, the drum sounds, perfectly represented that it was freaking depressing. It was the low point of the emotions of the album, but for me, the high point of the expression of the emotions. It's evident within the song title, obviously. And it was, it was just, it just dropped down, and you felt such premeditated discord in the piano work that just brought the whole sound it's together. A good way to put it. Yeah. They knew they were just creating a, a, a jar in it, and it was just perfectly done. 
the chord progression has a way of falling. It has that effect on you. It's like yeah, you are playing... falling at this moment. If there, it, it is the climax, essentially, but more of the reverse climax. It's the lowest point of the album. Yeah, it's, it's right before the, the angsty teenager realizes he's just screwing up his life. <laughs> it's, it's, it's when his dog's dead, his girlfriend left him, uh, d- dad went off to war, and mom's now working as a stripper. That's the point in the album, right yeah, um, there. I might only disagree with, with you on the uh, immaturity that you're describing. I, I found this to be a much more mature side of Interpol. What's compared against their earlier work, I think, uh, probably exhibited the angsty teen much more so. But in this work, you know, they're adults. They... The- they had a more uniformed idea of what they were trying to create. So I'd say that the problem, uh, if you could define it, was a more mature uh, life, maybe a midlife crisis, if anything. I think it's more indicative of a, a guy trying to get by, just lost his job, unemployment just ran out, things just started to fall apart around him, his wife left him. It's definitely much, a much more mature... Yeah. This is happening to a man, not a boy. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I'm and, sorry. And... <laughs> I'm sorry. I, okay, take everything I said and add 30 years to his age. But yeah. I think I think from um, track six on is when you got that cinematic feel for this album. the The first half was you didn't really feel it as much as then the second half of the album. You kind of felt this story progression with the songs, and it really came to a head with track eight because track eight was it was this truly big build up. Yeah, try it on. Um, it was a little bit of a hip hop. There was uh, I liked the little whistling they threw in there. <laughs> it was a, it was still a sad track, which is seems to be this entire album was a very sad album. Not necessarily I'm going to cut myself, kind of depressing, but sort of uh, a general malaise over everything. Which probably is why they chose always, mo- always malaise to be their climax. Yeah, it, and it was it was a little more upbeat than the rest of their stuff. Um, it was it was a really good track. It was well mixed. It was well layered. Then we had all of the ways, which we all agree is pretty much one giant song intro for track ten. Yeah, no, try it on had a great transition to all of the ways, and the transition never stopped. The entire track was a song build-up that never really seemed to become a full-fledged song. Strangely enough, I actually was not too keen on uh, All of the Ways. I actually thought that they were, it wasn't so much of a transition in itself as much as there were two transitions there, track 8 into track 9 and track 9 into track 10. But for the duration of track 9, I wasn't really feeling it. They, they, they had the potential to lose me. If they had shortened track 9 and literally just made track 9 a 30-second transition track to 10 it would have made the ending of the album a lot stronger I agree with that because track 10 which I think hands down might be my favorite track on the album it felt like the end of the album track 10 felt like this epic conclusion to this story you could feel that it was it was unraveling the album was unraveling and and, and falling apart into this and the track itself is called The Undoing right Undoing, unraveling, you know. And you really felt it. Like, the emotions that came across with that track, you very much could identify that this song was the end of the album. I'm I'm not going to say it was as good as the song I'm about to mention, but it had the same sort of finality as as the, the song. And the song is A Day in the Life from Sgt. Pepper's. And that song, when it ended the Sgt. Pepper's album, was... Ending the album. That was their end of their... It was their definitive operatic ending. And Undoing, while not nearly the same caliber, had the same emotional and finality to it. Certainly. Which was was solid. It really did bring the whole album to a close. It sort of felt like like the singer was sort of wrestling with the music at many times. And eventually it seemed like he gave up. Like, he yeah. truly was defeated by the music. Sort of let the music take hold, and there's a lot of symbolism going on there. I really, really liked what they did. And then when we were done listening to it, Matt did something, which I think really did... It, it, it sort of, like, fixed the album for me. It was very apparent when we re-listened to the first couple of tracks that the, the ending of... The, it, it made the album very cyclical. The ending connected very well to the intro and kind of made this, this album come together. And we really noticed it when we re-listened to tracks one, two, and three, and actually enjoyed them a lot more after hearing the ending. 
and made the album feel more complete. There's good sides and there's bad sides to that, to, yes. be, to be sure. I mean, on a first listen, I really do not think tracks one, two, and three are going to reel you in. By the time you're up to track three, you're a little, uh, I think you're a little bit pessimistic, to be honest, about whether the album really has the potential to grab you at this point. Because it seems a little aimless, it seems a little arbitrary. But then, as you continue, it's really just an uphill swing. I mean, I, I think that by the time you get to the end, you really do have a very uniformed idea of what this album is trying to say. And then you're going to want to listen to track one through three again. And when you do, you're probably going to see that in contexts where you didn't hear it before. This is definitely one of those albums, like we've talked about, at not at length, but at least a little bit before. It's one of those albums that definitely feels like a complete album. It it feels like it's interconnected. Um, John had said at one point that the songs very much felt very connected from one to the other, especially in the drum rhythms, felt very connected to each other. It was, well, the overall sound of this album, um, while different than your standard Interpol, it, it, uh, it sounded like a different band, but all same genre. The same... Genrefication. Oh my god, it was the <laughs> same sort of sound. It was a little bit different. They were they didn't quite sound like themselves, and that's that's okay. Yeah. Bands are allowed to evolve, and they did evolve to this. But it was more along the lines, and Steve said this: a garage band that just got access to uh, some new mixing ter- uh, technology. Like they finally <laughs> got a nice beat machine and could drop in tracks and yeah. drop out tracks. Like they kind of all, that, all that stuff is simply not present in their in their earlier work. It really didn't start showing itself until uh, until their previous album. But it's it's tough to quantify because the thing is, now that they have it, granted they can experiment a lot more. But they seem to be going in this in this one direction, which has an epic quality to it, but I don't think that they pull it off as well as some other bands, and that's uh, that's problematic to me because it seems like they probably lost their garage band edge. But this also could be a first step in. It could be. This is another in, in a more epic sound. They could be making that kind of. We were talking about epic bands earlier off the air. Um, by the way, just as a reference point, we do say a lot on the podcast. Oh, before so and so said X, before so and so said Y. So while we're going through this album review, I do want to say. That we listen to the albums together as a group. Before the podcast, we get together and listen to the album together. Sometimes some people have heard the album beforehand, but more or less we do listen to it together. And, that, and we'll comment as we're listening, which gives us what we discuss on the podcast. But, and then there was a point, and I completely lost it because I wanted to make sure I got that in. That's what happens. <laughs> yeah. But, but this album definitely... Oh, now I want to say... So when we were listening to it earlier, we brought up Muse. is a band who's definitely... Now they master the this epic. epic cinematic quality. And we'll get into that more because they do have a new album coming out this year. But it sounds like Interpol is taking their first step to becoming that kind of band, whether they will or not. I mean, we really need another album to tell. But it's, this is definitely... It's tough because Muse has a lot more experience than them in, in this regard. I mean, Interpol, they are billed as a post-punk revival band. Now... Punk bands usually don't go in that direction. Punk bands usually stay low-key. They stay as if they were, you know, just sort of playing in a, in a small little venue with a very devoted type of... Uh, they're playing for free. They're, get, they're, they're, they're selling t-shirts at the door so they can actually afford to make their next album of the yeah. songs they're previewing right now. A devoted, yeah. depressing audience. <laughs> yeah. Come to terms with their youth. But there are bands who have broken that cycle and gone more epic. And From according... punk? Green Day. Green Day is Green Day was heavy-duty punk, and then they released a rock opera album, essentially. American I'm not sure Indian. I would call it epic so much, though. It seemed like they really retained their punk sound. They retained their punk oh, yeah, sound, that's but they true. didn't... They didn't... It, it wasn't punk depressing, you know, the same sort of... They got brains too, long the view, thing, The thing is, we have a much more stuff. drastic change here with Interpol. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking... They're creating a whole backing uh, vibe behind them. I will, uh, I will agree. synth backdrop. I will agree that it is rare, and that even though Green Day is a decent point, it's a different kind of change for Green Day as it was for yeah. Interpol. I definitely got to give them points for uh, for our creativity here. Me too. I think so. To to start to kind of bring this around, my my score for this album is that for me at first I was going to say a solid three. I was going to give it a solid. Eh, it's okay. But as we got to the end, and then I kind of connected it, I think. 
I would give it a four. I think it was definitely a good album, and they're reaching for that next level, and I feel it in this album, and I actually liked it by the end a lot more than I did after the first couple of tracks. I thought it was just going to be average, but I would put it as an above-average album. It gets extra points for that creativity that you mentioned. I really do agree with that. I... Okay, the biggest problem I have with this album is that it is greater than the sum of its parts. I was just about to say that. <laughs> it, it really is. It There is no... And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but there is no track that I'm going to put on one of my playlists. There's no track I can, because taking these individual songs out of context kills the ones that I really like, and the the ones that I'm not too fond of kind of get... It, you don't even want to listen to. It's less an album and more of a musical score, an overreaching idea, that really they did well. It does come across. It's melodramatic it's sad it's depressing but it's not going to make you sad and depressing at the by the end of it you're almost hopeful even even when the musician fails in undoing to defeat the music you're still almost hopeful for the next time it's a three and a half it's a three and a half just remember you're rating it as an album though not that's as what i'm saying thing. okay it's a three and a half okay because there's nothing distinctive about any of the actual songs but it's a solid album, and you need to have both to really hit a four or five star level. You can do an overreaching story with an album without making the music too solid, too together. And I think that if they if they made a little more distinction, if they made them a little more standing on their own two feet, it would have been a four, four and a half, and I would have would have said. Well, I think you make a very valid point there, but not so much to its detriment, in my opinion. I believe that this was the appropriate time for uh, this type of cohesive concept album. I think that, given their earlier work, they clearly had many singles. All, uh, many, all, of, all of their singles have a very uh, one-hit wonder kind of style, although I shouldn't say one here because there's definitely others. But they can be played individually. They can be treated alone and in of their own right. But... The thing is, this is their fourth album, and by the time you come there, you sort of want something a little bit broader. You want to advance your your skills as a band. They're not just trying to create that one song on your iPod which you're going to rock out to. They are trying to create an overall idea. And this is going to connect to our next point. We, um, I, I believe that there are two types of arc. There's the arc of the song, there's the arc of an album. And then, actually, to a greater extent, there's the arc of the artist as a whole, entire discography, but that's really, really difficult to, uh, to gauge. But on, on this micro scale, you want something out of a song and you want something out of an album. I personally am an album fan. I think that albums should be, should be a solid work that you can take away something when you're done. You shouldn't just think, oh, that was a nice compilation of their work. You should be like, all right, that was a nice story told to me over a 45-minute to an hour period. And I thought this album achieved that goal. So because it achieved that goal, I have to bump it up a little bit higher. It uh, goes to about about a four for me. Points, definite points for creativity. I think I agree with Matt 100% on that. And, um, yeah, for that reason, a four. A solid four. They, they can do better. They can do better on their individual songs, and I don't know where they're going to go next. So, yeah. The only thing, the only points it loses for me is really their intro. I, I think that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't yield anything as you're starting out. It leaves a lot to be desired. They, if they had only restructured the intro, I think this would, have, this would be a really solid uh, near-to-five album. So then to average it out, it's a 3.75, you know. <laughs> it's almost a four. It's almost yeah. a solid four. And, and I'm hey, okay. no, that's two against one here. We have two fours. So it's really whatever's in between 3.75 and four. <laughs> I said three and a half. You want me to do the math? Three point it's 3.8333333, 3, I think. Three repeating? No, no, yeah, no, no, three no, repeating. No. I'm not good at math, so we'll skip that. But we'll, we'll average up to four. I'll give it to you guys. But but Steve does bring up 3. a good 8, point. 3.875. That's it. 885. My bad. <laughs> 885. Oh, my God. The, the, <laughs> but the point that we're trying to get to is definitely that, that albums, albums can function in many ways, and, and John really hit it 
well is to get a, a perfect album if there is such a thing, which I guess there is. We can debate over that at a later date. But to get a perfect album, you need the individuality of the singles and the strong songs as well as this kind of stitching. It doesn't necessarily have to be related or have an overarching story, but there has to be that connectedness at least. You know, like we said, the Cage Elephant was strong in some places because even though it was all over the place, it felt very much like a Cage the Elephant album because that's what it, you expect from them. It went together. It flowed. Whereas Linkin Park was also disjointed like Cage, but it was too disjointed and there was no... There was no strength. A good album also isn't all rise. Although Barney Stinson would disagree, you need to come down and you need... You do. Not every song is going to be the strongest song on the album, though everyone's opinion on what the strongest song will be different. I have said this before in regards to As Tall As Lions. You do need to come down at a certain point. And uh, I I really do rate the the breadth of a band's band's talent by that ability to, to give you the full spectrum. Because anybody can just do one more, you know, one thing. Right. And some people do want just one thing. They want, right. yeah, yeah, just give me anger, 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 anger. I'm not so much a fan of that. I think uh, the greatest metal bands out there are ones that know to tone it down a notch after a while. You know, you can only take so much. Metallica is one of the best examples of that. Yeah. They have songs like Enter Sandman, which are incredibly fast and heavy. And then they have songs that are Nothing Else Matters, which exactly. is just, uh, you know, guitar, ri- you know, lo- slow low, slow guitar riffs, and a nice backbeat of drums. And I give Metallica a lot of credit for having that uh, that foresight. They have a lot of diversity in their career, and there are other metal bands that do it too, but they were the first ones to come to mind. Sure. And that's why I think the, the Black Album, if we're going to talk about albums that have that overarching but still have standout singles, the Black Album is a very solid CD for that, because you have songs like Enter Sandman and Nothing Else Matters, and then also Sad But True, which is this very kind of sad, depressing song, but powerful. And and that's, you know, that those are qualities that you look for in a great album. But also a lot of it's personal preference too. Some people prefer some people prefer an album that has that connectedness and some people like an album like a, a Rob Zombie album where every song's kind of over the top, very fast, kind of fun. That's the thing it all does depend on your mood. I mean, when it comes right down to it, I believe that there's a one-dimensionality to bands that only focus on one emotion. I mean, that's the definition of one-dimensionality. But if you're look, if you're in that mood, who's to say that you know a band can't go in that one direction? It's just at some point you got to give an overall rating of their work, and that's difficult to do. Well, uh, some bands that I truly love, I have to say, really never did the rock opera um, before Green Day did it, before 21st Century and American Idiot. Um, which were both rock operas, I, I was in love with them. i not abashed to say that. They do very individual songs, though, especially their early stuff. Uh, Weezer is very individualistic in their songs. There's no over arc Isn't in their Weezer album. Again? Always with the Weezer, uh, you. <laughs> Weezer, Weezer's one of my favorite. Another band which never really did overreaching albums, The Who. All right. And I'll buy that to The extent. Who was one of my five bands growing up. Along with Green Day Weezer, it was Beatles, Who, and Neil Young. Those were the five guys I was really listening to until I hit about 20. You know, the funny thing there is that of those bands, I had a... I dappled with them all, but the only one that has endured is the Beatles. I'll say that. And Beatles, especially... I seem to mature, like, uh, mature out of the others. There are those Beatles reason. again. Beatles had a... Yes, well, there's a lot to say about the Beatles. Yeah, the Beatles, well... Beatles had a theme in every single one of their albums. Every single one of their oh, albums. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Well, it's... maybe not so much their earlier ones. No, every single... They were all love stories. Their early albums were just pure, unabridged love stories. Okay, true. But they did not have the same uniformity, let's say, It was as... very different. As Sgt. Pepper. Oh, no, 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 no. Not even close. Or uh, Let It Be. Or The thing is, you have to um, consider the time frame. The concept album did not exist back then. They literally were compilations. This is what the album was throughout the 40s and 50s. In fact, the term album actually comes from... The only reason we have the word album is because uh, 33 records, right? Those were invented somewhere around the late 40s. And when they were invented... At the time, there were only existed uh, 78s. 78s were sort of small, and they played really, really fast. You could only fit maybe just a couple of songs on them. So let's say you wanted to, you know, go back and, and put a symphony on an album uh, or and on one cohesive 
thing to have. Like, All right, I want to hear this whole symphony. You couldn't do it. You simply could not finish it fit because it's, you can't fit it because there's 45 minutes to fit on something that can only play about three or four minutes. So what you'd do is you'd have a book a book, just like a photo album, you'd have a stack of all those records, and as a result, you would call it an album, because it's this large thing that exists. This volume. Yeah, this volume, exactly, perfect word. But then you come around to the 50s and 60s, and once uh, modern artists started utilizing that same thing, they just, you know, used it, ah, hey, now we can get all our songs onto one, we don't have to release singles anymore, we can get all our songs onto one, uh, onto one album. Yeah, but it had hit. no concept at the time. It was just a way to get all your music out there. Beatles were the ones who invented a few albums in. They were the ones who invented the idea of the full concept that actually is a story connecting from each song to another. They weren't the only ones doing it. Uh, ELO did it to some extent around the same time. Pink Floyd obviously did it. To some extent, at the same time, in the um, same time frame, we're talking in the same no, they eight were a to little ten bit, years. They were, they were a little later. They were a little later. They were a little Beatles were definitely the first to do it. Beatles started doing this in the early '60s, but they did not have it so early as the late '50s, like with "Please Please Me." Yes, that's true. Uh, we'll say "Please Please Me" is a compilation, in my opinion. So the birth of the album was more like 1961. Of the concept album, sixty maybe sixty-three, sixty-four. Yeah, I'm feeling more. Um, a little bit with help. Just a little bit. Yeah, I think help has A little bit more, certainly, with Revolver. Yes. Oh, Revolver, and rubber, I'm going to say Rubber Soul as well. Yes. So we'll certainly. say that Revolver, Rubber Soul invented the concept album. I would make that assertion, yes. So, okay. I am saying That's that where we on got air, our... they invented the concept album at that time. Well, it's no secret that the Beatles are responsible for a lot of trends in modern music. Ah, 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 ah. Wait. I'm wrong. I am now saying this on air. I am wrong. <laughs> Very what? shortly after saying I'm right. Jazz. Oh, that's true. Jazz has been doing this since the 50s. Yeah. They were the first because jazz loves to ramble. They love, they, they didn't have just three-minute jazz songs. When, when jazz artists started getting together, such as you know Charles Mingus and, uh, and John Coltrane in the 50s, when they were doing their work, they wanted, they wanted a, a full-formed idea. And when they did that, they had... A full album. They had to have a full album because it's the only way they would get out their work. Right. Because they can't say it in three minutes. They simply can't. So they were the first to latch on to that. That's uh, that's something to be addressed, I think, because we don't talk about jazz that much, but we should. No, yeah. Jazz and blues definitely have a strong influence on a lot of the stuff that came later. I'm going to throw out an album there. Uh, Charles Mingus Modern Jazz Symposium. I believe the year is 1959, and that is as as much of an album as anything you'll ever listen to. That's that is a full formed idea, front to back, beginning to end. No in, no individual song can exist without the other. They can, but you know you're going to lose the vast majority of the point. Well, then how is this? Is this a good thing or a bad thing that that nowadays we do have these sort of albums that are overreaching journeys? They are not standalone songs. Well, the thing it's, is, now we have a choice. Because now we're not limited by technology. You know, as of the 50s, you can do anything you want. You can have something like Interpol here, where one song can't really exist about the other. And then you have situations where you might, you know, like that Maroon 5, for instance. The Maroon 5 album. What was the, what was the name of that, 2012? Uh, Overexposed. Overexposed. That was a compilation, if I've ever heard one. Right. I mean, that was his goal, it seemed. His goal was to get out all of the variety of the different things he can do. Um, Which was itself an art, but then they broke it up with actual Maroon 5 songs, or attempts at songs. What really, I think the issue is that it will have a poor effect if your band is popular because of a specific sound. Then if you're going to go out there and do a compilation of varying types of work, you might be trying to, to sort of get all these different ideas out there, but it's sort of lost on your audience that is so accustomed to that one thing. I think... Personally, that it comes down to real personal preference because I I don't think we can safely say that the compilation is better than the overarching story album. I think that I can say that I prefer the overarching right. story album. I think it's it comes down to personal preference. Like for me, I mean, a lot of my favorite bands, like John, don't have those overarching stories, story albums. Um, like uh, Matchbox 20, which I, I talk about a lot, you know, they were one of the first bands I really got into in the mid to early 90s. And a lot of their albums 
were very much song by song, but they felt good together. And you, you know, you could tell they were still Matchbox Twenty songs, but they weren't this overarching story. Well, uh, a couple of my uh, my my uh, guilty pleasure bands or artists, because I'm going to talk about um, Eminem. One of my favorite albums by him is Encore. And that is a, an album that really does have an arc to it, but each song is very individualistic. American Idiots. See, that, that's, that's the happy medium there. Yes, because exactly. we're, we're, we're not talking about walking on the fence. I got, I got, it's the best I of both worlds for me. That is and Green Day's American Idiot has very individualistic songs, but even if you can listen to it through and get the story. That's my favorite type of album, in the, in and one case, of my favorites. I, I misspoke, because that really is my favorite type of album, too. Yeah, yeah. Something that has a uniformity, but doesn't detract from the individuality. Like, the single American Idiot from that album was very much a, a pop rock single that you could hear by itself and not know that it was part of a rock opera. But then when you listen to it with the album, it still fits neatly into that formula for the whole album. Sure. I mean, ultimately, I think every band should experiment with all different forms. So you should experiment with micro, and you should experiment with the macro. I well, I'm going to say I'm going to say the best album that I think did the micro ma- uh, macro together. In my opinion, not necessarily perfectly, but at its best, is obviously definitely Pink Floyd's The Wall. I believe that mm-hmm. was the progenitor of a rock opera that you got a group of songs that go together instead of just one sound. Which every song does have a sound that bleeds together, but each song is truly indi- uh, individual. I am close to agreeing with you there, but it might be a little bit more toward the side of concept album. That's the thing. I mean, you're talking about that it's walking on the fence, but I think that some of those songs couldn't exist without the other. That's no, well. I don't know. Maybe uh, I was I was raised a little differently growing up, because Pink Floyd was supposed to be Pink Floyd's The Wall. It was on my uh, oh, wall, framed growing up. Mine too. My dad was a huge fan of uh, Pink Floyd The Wall. That was honestly his favorite work. Forget about Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, The Wall was where it was at. But that's just the thing. I feel like if you're going to sit down and listen to The Wall, don't listen to a song from The Wall. Listen to The Wall. That's where you're going to get the point. Because otherwise, the point cannot be spoken as a whole. You know, if you take a song like Mother, all right, that's a nice little snapshot of time. But it's still just a song about a mother. It, uh, it's tough to say. I have one. And I've brought it up many times as probably one of the greatest pop records ever. Thriller is a story. But it's definitely individualized. I really think that might be one of the best albums that you can break down as individual songs that were great singles but still tell a story the song thriller even the video version which is like this mini movie compared to the audio version which is not as extended i mean you just get this feeling that this this is something you could listen to through all together and you would get a whole different picture than if you just plucked the songs but they still work but well by themselves that's actually a better example i think i think so I really, I really feel that that's one of those albums. Well, I was a little more Floyd than the King of Pop growing up. I didn't really listen to Michael Jackson by comparison to some of the uh, uh, the, the, the late 60s, early 70s uh, classic rock and southern rockers. I mean, let's just put it this way. Pink Floyd really, really took their work a lot more seriously. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot more technicality going on there in Pink Floyd. So, again, that is sort of apples and oranges. But I see your point. Michael Jackson wanted to take you on an adventure. That album is an adventure. And even, to a lesser extent, Bad, which came out much, much later. But The Wall, on the flip side, is political message. Oh, yeah. You know, tenfold. I mean, it's a very heartfelt tale. And I think you should feel very strongly about society after it's done. That My point is, it can't, that can't be achieved by the individual songs on that album, I don't think. Some allude to it, but you're not going to get the full picture. You're not going to hear that until the wall crumbles down at the end of the album. I think I, think I want you to listen to um, the Flowbots uh, album, Fight With Tools. I think well, that's a segue I never expected. No, 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 because it's it's it doesn't have the same arch as as a just one message. It is the same general message, and it's it's a rap, hip hop, rock album. 
Uh, I've talked to them about it a few times. And you've, I've got to get you to listen to that one because I think you might like it purely because of the Perhaps. way they do the, the whole story in, in the album. Sure. Well, I also like people who push envelopes. And I think, um, I think Pink Floyd was really at the forefront of that, uh, that sort of psychedelic classic rock feel. <laughs> yes, definitely. I mean, that didn't really exist beforehand, or yeah, people well, dappled with it in the late '60s, sure. But if you want, they talk, only got so far. There's, yeah, not not anybody really got close, and it, they also kind of really invented the political sound. Uh, they well, no, they popularized uh, the think, political think, sound. I don't believe there is a political sound. Well, no, no, no. The, the I believe desire that politics to... can be infused in every genre, any. No, I think the the modern day desire to listen to music about politics. I think what we have nowadays okay, desire is with different. anti-flag... So you're, you're saying that they popularized a political message in music, Pink, Pink Floyd. Yes. Okay. Not necessarily the same message that's being listened to today, obviously, but the desire to hear to be heard about the... your, your life, your society. Yeah, the voice of the people. Then I again, imagine. Dylan did that a little bit earlier. No, I'm, I can't believe I'm, I'm using I'm Dylan saying, as a proponent here. But no, but Dylan didn't hit the say. same level of audience as Floyd. Oh, I'd have to disagree. No, he was popular pretty early. Yeah. I mean, even as of the mid-60s, the Beatles were borrowing from him. That's pretty amazing. Well, think about... You've ever... Uh, you've heard about the, the Pink Floyd Wall uh, rock opera they did live. Oh, yeah. Where during I've the entire show, they're breaking through the wall with sledgehammers. Just the symbolism there. And this wasn't a, a, a little hole in the wall. I mean, this is like Shea Stadium level of kind of a of a of a setting. What do you think of the movie that was done off of it? That's another thing that Dylan didn't do. But I think we're now we're it's getting. True. I think but now, now we're we are getting off the topic. Yeah, I, think, I think we're getting more into personal preference now of what you like better because Dylan was doing it before them. Yes, whether he was as popular or well known, just like ragtime and jazz musicians were doing it of before course. Dylan. And blues did plenty of political stuff too. I mean, and not to the same extent. Freaking Mozart did before them. I mean, you can go back quite some time and still see politics and music. Nah, Mozart was lighthearted. <laughs> oh yeah, he was fine. Totally Actually, no. Uh, Marriage of Figaro, come to think of it, was very political. Uh, though he didn't want to offend the king. <laughs> anyway, but this is definitely something that I think, when it comes down to, it's perfect personal preference. But there are definitely points in time that created what we have that we can base our personal preference on. That, that influenced it. And I think the what we're probably all saying here is that the true way to make something that'll stand the test of time, like Floyd, like Beatles, is to find a way to get a whole message in one album that's individualistic in songs. I think that's really what makes... Sure, because people remember Pink Floyd for both their albums and their songs. This is true. And, yeah. and you think of Sgt. Pepper's, you think of the song and the actual feel. Abbey Road, you think of the songs and the feel. Right, and um, just to tie this back around to Interpol, I mean, if we were going to leave off on any note there as to whether they accomplished uh, songs and feel, what would you say? I I remember the album, but I'm not going to... In in a week, I'm going to remember this album. My ears are going to still be remembering this album. But you will definitely. not be remembering I'm not going to be able to put, yeah. pick out I, a song. I agree with that so 100%. They, yeah. And that, in, in that way... I can't say that they've fallen. I just don't think they were going for that. I think Interpol very much succeeded at that in their earlier work. I think they've had their singles. They've had people singing along to their lyrics, a la me. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say, even Corn did it because I don't remember any of the real songs from the Corn album we did, mm. but I do remember the overall feel of that album. With that specific album, but not Corn in general. No, not Corn in general. But just that about album. No, the, yeah, I'll with agree the with dub that. album. Yes, I will agree with that as well. I'm not sure I got a feel from that album, come to think of it. I, 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 my points for that album were on experimentation primarily. I did not really get a feel. I think that this brings us back around ultimately to why I find music so fascinating and I've always wanted to have a website and a podcast about it, is music is completely interpretive and no two people, I feel, hear the same thing. They'll hear similar things, but not the same thing. Different ears will hear... And on Left that, side, right side. I mean, it all yeah. depends on how you mix it. And, and on that bombshell, I just want to wrap up and say, please send us emails, questions, comments to crashchordsblog at gmail.com. Bother us. Make fun of us. We don't Please care. comment on iTunes. Comment on the website. Um, yeah, I could use a slap in the face. I mean, go ahead. I could. Whether it's, whether it's complimenting, insulting, criticizing, I mean, 
We just want to hear from you guys. So if you're out there and you're listening, please reach out to us. You can find us on the Facebook page, uh, uh, facebook.com slash Crash Chords. So please, definitely reach out. And as always, music is life and life is good.